The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the house. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 12 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasek. And I'm Lori Jennings. In today's episode, we learn about the murder of 30-year-old father of four, Joshua Jernigan. Joshua's case is in the state of Kansas's recently released first deck of cold case playing cards. It's been five years of silence since Joshua's death and his family and community are hoping someone will break the silence and come forward with information. As always, we would love to see the day when there are no faces to put on the cold case playing cards, but until that day comes, we will continue telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. Help us deal justice for Joshua Jernigan. This is episode 12, the Joshua Jernigan case, Four of Hearts, Kansas Deck. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us to Topeka, Kansas, where a family fled the dangers of New Orleans only to discover real danger in the heart of the Midwest. Joshua Jernigan grew up in New Orleans, born and raised in the Ninth Ward. To give you some perspective, if you're not familiar with New Orleans, the Ninth Ward is geographically the largest of New Orleans' 17 wards. It's located in the easternmost downriver part of the city, so the city is bordered by the Mississippi River to the south and Lake Pontchartrain to the north. Famous people from musicians like Fats Domino, Actors, poets, and authors such as Anne Rice have all called New Orleans home. When Joshua was growing up in the late 1990s, the Ninth Ward was predominantly an African-American community where many residents called home and described it as family, friends, and a close neighborhood. But it was also poverty-stricken with an extremely high crime rate. Joshua, affectionately called J.J., was the middle child of six children. Jessica Miller, his older sister, says Joshua was shy 
But once he came out of his shell, he was actually a really funny kid, and he loved to make people laugh. Jessica shares with us some of her favorite memories of Joshua and their childhood. As a kid, um, with me being the bigger sister, he probably was used to me bossing him around. <laughs> I mean, you know, big sister, little brother. Um, but, you know, we played a lot. We did a lot of things together. And of course, with me being older and there being, you know, the years between us, um, he would want to follow me around, do everything I did. So I would take him along with my baby brother, sometimes along with me and my friends, you know, like skating. He loved to play kickball. Um, he loved to play soccer. He, uh, we grew up very family oriented and we grew up pretty much poor. So we would spend a lot of time together, you know, just doing stuff that didn't cost us any money, you know, like outside playing, you know, jump rope. Um, and of course I was a girly girl, so I would make, you know, like mud cakes and stuff. And I would, you know, make him act like he was the chef and carrying it to our little guest in our little restaurant, you know, just stuff like that. Um, he was the middle child. So, he had that struggle between he wanted to be like older, but he also wanted to be the baby, if that makes sense. Should I be big right now or should I be a baby right now, you know? Joshua and his siblings were very close. They may not have had material things, but they had each other and love and some pretty fantastic stories like this one, where Jessica recalls how her and her little brother would tease Joshua about his eating habits and yet also have his back. Um, and then me and my baby brother, we would always tease him because um, he wasn't a very big eater, but he was a very picky eater. And so he could just overload himself with like the stuff that he loved, which was like eggs and rice. Um, he loved my mom's sweet potato pies. And so for his birthday, we would tell him he was adopted because he was the only one of us that wouldn't eat cake. He would want my mama's sweet potato pies. For his, you know, for his birthday, because his birthday is in November, which would land around Thanksgiving time. And from like a little boy, he never wanted a cake. He always wanted my mama's sweet potato pies. And so we'd be like, you're you're adopted. Nobody does that but you. <laughs> and so we would joke around all the time or whatever. And then me, uh, by him being a very picky eater, some, t some things that my mom would cook, it wasn't that he didn't like it. He just like her cooking. He just didn't want to eat it. And so he would get in trouble and to keep my mom from fussing at him, me and my baby brother would eat, you know, his plate, what he didn't want. So we, so he wouldn't get in trouble. But then when we would be mad at him, we'd be like, mm -mm, you're getting in trouble today. You're going to have to eat all your food and mom's going to fuss at you. <laughs> like that would be our way of getting back at him too. You know, the sibling thing, love war type thing. So he, he was definitely that middle child, but he was also very um, protective over me as his sister. Um, he didn't like nobody really, you know, fooling with me. You know, and when you're young, you know, oh, they talking about me, they doing this. And he would be like, what? They ain't talking about my sister. So he was one of, like, my brother that would always, you know, be willing to step up, like, I got your back, you know, like, and we would just always joke because Aww, he was shorter. Sweet. Yeah, he was shorter. And so we would be like, boy, what you gonna do with your small self? And so we would just laugh because he wasn't ag aggressive at all. He was just, you know, nonchalant, laid back. Um, and like I said, a very shy kid, but eventually he came up out of his shell. Around the time that Joshua was a preteen, the family moved to the eastern side of New Orleans, 
seeking a safer neighborhood in hopes of a better life and broader opportunities for the children. But then in 2005, when Joshua was in high school, everything changed for the family and the entire city of New Orleans. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a test. There is a major hurricane that is in the Gulf of Mexico. The worst of the storm has now reached New Orleans. This is the moment we've been talking about, dreading. And I'm wondering how long these levees are going to hold on Lake Pontchartrain. Live in New Orleans, where some mandatory evacuations are already underway. And you're Joshua's sister Jessica tells us the family's initial plan after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina hit is how our family ended up in Kansas. So, um, but the funny thing is, it started out as we were just coming thinking we would be visiting. And so we were like, okay, Texas is crowded, uh, Atlanta, all those places were already crowded. So we're like, well, you know, we can just go to Kansas. We'll only be there for a couple of weeks. And, you know, we'll come back home. The governor of Louisiana said today that she is considering the remarkable step of evacuating the remaining residents of New Orleans. The scene is nothing short of apocalyptic. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. And rising waters will now force officials to evacuate the shelter at the Superdome. Katrina's departure was just the beginning of the misery. Well, it was nothing to go back home to. So what we thought would be just, you know, a little vacation turned out to be, you know, where we ended up living. So and our whole family just got transitioned here, which and then the funny thing is our mindset was we're going on a two week vacation. And then after this vacation, we'll be back home. That going back home never happened for us. So we had to mentally, you know, grasp that. And it takes a while. Like it took me at least two to three years to give up hope on going back home. Like literally, it was a big transition for all of us. The family found themselves temporarily settling in Lewisburg, Kansas, where they quickly realized there was no place like home. It was such a, a wake up calling, like shock of environment, culture, people like it was so different for all of us, like my whole family. Honestly, we were the only people that looked like us outside of maybe two or three other people that were part of the African-American um community um so we ended up uh we didn't we decided we didn't want to do that so we lived there for about three months where he attended lewisburg high school and then we initially moved closer in within topeka to be closer to my grandmother and her sister which would be our aunt once the family settled in topeka joshua started attending topeka high school but the chaos of losing his home family friends and the very fabric of his security along with the overwhelming sadness of the situation, was proving too much for the teenager. His sister Jessica shares with us that Joshua was struggling. Um, he ended up not graduating. Kind of, you know, was a little bit of depressed there, you know, with moving, new family, well, new friends, and trying to just cope with everything. Um, it, was, it was a hard thing to bounce back from. Um, and so he, he did ha go through a little bit of depression there with the transition and everything. Eventually, it seemed the dark cloud that followed Hurricane Katrina began to lift. The city was rebuilding, and so was Joshua. By this time, he had settled into life in Kansas. He met a woman who became his wife, but after eight years, it ended in divorce. Even after they divorced, they still stayed friends, so... 
but yeah, she helped him a lot. So, and then he ended up, you know, finding work and, you know, just basically rebuilding, you know, the second part of his life, I would say, you know, coming from out of that high school to, you know, young adult age and having to start over like that, going through something, having to start over. Soon after, Joshua welcomed his first child. And over the next few years, he would have several relationships that resulted in more children. And although it seems he struggled at holding down a relationship with one woman, with children, it was a different story. Joshua was very involved and hands-on with his children, especially after his daughter was diagnosed with autism. He worked at Walmart for a little bit, and then he worked at Reese's Warehouse as well. But eventually, when my uh, niece was born, um, he kind of stopped working because she had got diagnosed with autism. And so he became pretty much a full-time father um, to her. And I'm not surprised that he ended up being you know, that father that was very hands-on just of, you know, how we grew up. We grew up with family. So that's one of the things that Josh really did treasure was his kids and family. So I wasn't surprised that when um, Jayla was born and as she got older, she got diagnosed with autism, that he um, was very involved and hands-on with her. That didn't take me by surprise at all. April 2017. Joshua, Jessica, and their extended families were strewn across Kansas and other states at this point. The Easter holiday was a perfect time to reunite and celebrate. Last time we all were together was for that Easter in April, where it was like actually me, my mom, my baby brother and his children, my children, Josh and his kids. Like that was the last time we were all together. So for our the last time for like a family event where everybody was all together and my mom was here because my, my baby brother, he lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So all of them traveled here to Kansas City to my house. And then Josh came up here and we all spent the week that Easter weekend um, together as a family. The family said their goodbyes and like family holidays, everyone departed and assumed they would see each other again. It never crossed Jessica's mind that this would be the last time she would see her little brother, Joshua. And just like the others, we can only imagine that Joshua assumed the same thing. October 2nd, 2017. Joshua was living in an apartment complex in central Topeka, the Westview Apartments on the second floor with his girlfriend, who was the mother of his two children, the youngest being nine months old. At home was Joshua, his girlfriend, and the three children who were all living there at the time. It was a normal day, and neighbors remember seeing Joshua outside of the apartment complex playing in the field with his kids and the other neighborhood children which Jessica tells us was very much the norm for him. Because Josh helped a lot of people in the neighborhood. Um, he helped with a lot of the kids, some of their mothers, um, with their children uh, within that complex and that community just by, you know, hanging out with them, you know, playing football on that field with them and basketball. And because he did that stuff with my nephew as well. He was actually out in the field playing football, you know, with the little boys in the neighborhood, along with my nephew before all of this happened. Um, And I wasn't shocked to find that out, you know, that he was on the field, you know, with those kids and just out, you know, enjoying his neighbors and 
talking to people. And, you know, that's that's just who Josh was. Tuesday, October 3rd, 2017. Around midnight, Jessica received a video from Joshua on Facebook. He had messaged me on Facebook like around midnight and sent me a video of uh, my nephew, Deshaun. And I messaged him back and was like, boy, go to bed, whatever. You know, I was like, what the hell are you doing up? And he was like, nothing, I'm sending you this of your other child, which because we always joked and said that my nephew, Jay Sean, because he favors one of my kids. And so he always says he made him for me. So we would laugh about it or whatever. And so um, it wasn't uncommon for him to, you know, send me videos or whatever, whatever. The funny thing is, I never opened a video. I was like, I'll just open it later. But later never came. Sometime around 4 a.m., Joshua's girlfriend was holding their nine-month-old son in her arms when, according to witness accounts, someone in a black hoodie and face covering was let inside the apartment building. The man went straight to Joshua's apartment door and knocked. According to a neighbor who heard the exchange, Joshua said hello and let the person in. It seemed the dialogue was friendly until she was jarred awake by the man's voice growing louder. And then he announced that he was going to count to five, and then he was going to shoot Joshua. The next thing she heard was the man slowly count. One, two, three, four, five. The shooter then turned the gun on Joshua's girlfriend, who was still holding their son. He shot four times. When the massacre was over, Josh laid on the floor face down with one bullet to the head. His girlfriend was also shot in the head, once in the jaw, in the arm, and grazed by the fourth bullet. Joshua's oldest son, who was still a small child at the time, had to step over his father's body to run across the hall to another apartment to get help. More than a dozen officers responded to the scene and canvassed the neighborhood looking for the shooter or clues that would lead them to the suspect. Meanwhile, Jessica was fast asleep. She remembers being awoken early in the morning. Well, and I'm, like I said, I live in Kansas City, which is an hour away. And, um, oh God, I'm going to pause right here. Because it's always, this part always just bothers me. So I initially found out that something was going on. It was about maybe 3.45 in the morning. Um, My baby brother called my phone. And mind you, he lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I'm like, why is he calling me at 3.45 in the morning? That's weird. And I'm like, maybe he just up whatever. So I didn't answer it because I'm like, I'm about to, I'm asleep. And then he calls back and I'm like, okay, he's calling me back to back. Something's got to be wrong. So by this time it's like 3.50, 3.52. So I answer the phone and I'm like, boy, what is going on? And he said, Jessica, get up, get up now. And I said, what, what's the matter? He said, one of my friends um, that he's friends with that lives in Topeka, um, that lived in the area, called him and said, I think something's going on at your brother's um, apartment y'all may need to get here. And so that's the message that my baby brother told me. He said, that's what his friend told him. So I got up and I'm like, what do you mean something's going on? 
And he was like, I don't know. He said the police and the ambulance are out there. You know, people are hollering and screaming. But he did hear somebody says, said that something happened to Josh and um, had Joshua's apartment. And I'm like, okay. So I get up and I have um, the WIBW news notifications that came up on my phone. And so I seen it digging, um, ding, heard it dinging and I just clicked on it. And the news station was in front of my brother's apartment complex. And I'm like, okay, something's wrong. So um, I initially just got up threw on some clothes and I told my children, I was like, Hey, you guys stay home from school today. I have to go to Topeka because I think there's an emergency going on with uncle Josh. That's all I told my kids. I didn't know what was going fully, what was going on at the time. So I got up um, at the time, my uh, ex-husband, he was like, I'll just drive. You do all the calling. So I started calling um, the hospitals and, you know, trying to do what I could do. And when I called the hospital, they kept saying that they didn't have anybody by my brother's name. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. So finally, something in me was like, just call the police station. So I called the police station and they started questioning me and trying to verify that I was you know, who I said I was and everything. And they put me on hold. And one of the officers came back to the phone and said, how soon can you be here? I was like, well, I'm actually on the highway headed to Topeka now. And he was like, okay, just come straight to the police station. And so I was like, what? Why are you telling me come to the police station instead of the hospital? So then I knew at that point that something had happened. So that's initially how I found out that something had took place. When Jessica finally made it to the police station, a detective sat her down and Jessica was shocked at what he was telling her. He was like, you know, can you come back here with me? And I went back into, you know, this little room or whatever, and we're sitting there and he goes, starts telling me, you know, that there was a shooting and, and I'm like, okay. And then I saw, I'm like, okay, so where's my brother at? You know, why am I not at the hospital? Da, 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 da. And he goes, um, I, I need you to identify your brother. And I'm like, what? And I just was numb. Like, I just couldn't believe it. And I was like, what do you, like, what do you mean identify him? And I'm like, oh God, no, please tell me that this is not happening. And so it's just like all this shock. And I'm like, no. And I kept saying, no, not my brother, not my baby. Like, you know, cause they were my babies. My little brothers were my babies, you know, like i say like a second mom. I'm like, I didn't watch this boy grow up. Like, can't be. No, no. And I just kept saying, no, I, I said, I'm not going to identify him. And he was like, okay, just take a breather. I'm going to give you some time. Cause I absolutely did not want to do that. But eventually um, I had to, and yeah, it was, it was him. I had to say, yeah, that's, that's my brother. That's him. And that is one of the hardest things that I have had to do in my entire life. And I have been through some things, but still to this date, that has been one of the hardest things that I had to do was identify my brother and say, yes, that's him. So then after that, after, you know, I identified him and, you know, said that it was him and, you know, all the preliminary things. Um, they started asking us, you know, questions, you know, about his life, you know, about his friends, 
you know, that type of thing. So then they went into, you know, what they do, which is detective mode, you know. So they, uh, like, they started questioning me, you know, when was the last time I talked to him? And, like, I even opened my phone. I said, I just talked to him literally a few hours ago. So I talked to him in that, you know, when he sent me that video. And by 4 that morning, my brother was gone. As Jessica processed the horrible news, she simply could not deliver that message to her mother. The one thing I did not do is break the news to my mom because I didn't know how to. I didn't want to. It was something that I literally was in shock. Like, I didn't cry. I didn't... um I just was in shock. Like my body became numb when when I found out, like I just instantly went into kind of numbness and survival mode. And I asked my ex-husband, I said, I can, you know, I can talk to the officers. I can do all of that stuff. But the one thing I cannot do is make the phone call to my mom. Can you please, you know, call her husband, talk to him first, have him sit her down and then, you know, tell her. Um, he did do it. He did it on speakerphone and the scream that that came from that speakerphone when, you know, they broke it to my mom, just it was a whole new level of empathy for her, not as my mother, but just as a woman having a child now because now I have children and I wouldn't want nobody to I wouldn't want to have to go through that. Because it's my brother, but this is her child who she carried for nine months. So now I'm looking at my mom as a mom, and then now I'm looking at her as a woman, you know, from woman to woman that has had a child. And it's like, oh, my God, you know what? And I I didn't want to have to do that part. So I asked my ex-husband to do it for me. It was crazy to me at the time, but I still wouldn't take that judgment call back because I had no words. But I had to find the strength to tell her, and I couldn't find that strength to tell her. I didn't want it coming from me. Joshua was gone. The family was dealing with the overwhelming shock and grief of losing their loved one. Joshua's girlfriend was in a coma and would stay that way for close to nine months. She had suffered a traumatic brain injury and would never fully recover. No answers, no leads, no justice. And you may be thinking, what kind of trouble was Joshua in? Did he live a lifestyle that had risks? His sister Jessica explains. Josh was not a troublemaker. Josh didn't run like in and out of jail. Josh was never on, you know, no type of drugs or anything like that. So the way he got killed was not the way that he lived. It wasn't his demeanor. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't a person that, you know, you have some people that just start, you know, fights and arguments and that stuff. Even as a child, you know, he would be the first one to be like, no, we shouldn't do this. You know, I apologize. You know, even if I didn't want to apologize, he would apologize, you know. So the way he got killed was very, um, it's like a mystery to us because it it was just shocking because my my brother honestly didn't live his life, you know, the way he got killed. Even now, we still um, have our moments where it's just unbelievable that um, somebody walked into the house and 
um, and they, well, they killed him, but they also shot the mother of his children, too. Such a violent act with no warning, and the family is left with one big question. What was the motive? Why? We don't understand why. That's the biggest question for us, is why? And we believe if somebody can come forward, you know, to identify this person, then maybe we can get that answer to the big question for us, which is why, you know, because we know what your intentions were. It's obvious. My brother's not no longer here. You know, what did he do that caused you to take his life? And and I, I know no answer would be good enough, but at least we would have an answer. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. And I'm a firm believer in, in, in faith and prayer. And I feel like you always have to find a reason to thank God. And one of the reasons that I thank God through all of this is that I didn't lose none of my my niece or my nephews in that house because that it could have been worse, you know, where the kids actually lost their lives. You know, so I'm grateful that they are still here, you know, to, you know, live the life that they have left in spite of, you know, this tragedy. And, and I'm praying that we can turn this tragedy into a triumph, you know, for their sake, you know. And where are Joshua's children today? I took the youngest two for a little bit, um, but they eventually, um, the state awarded her father um, full custody of them. So the girlfriend's dad has the younger two of my brother's kids. The middle one, he's with his mother, like I said, in a different state. And then the oldest one, he still lives in Topeka with his mom. Um, we still, we get to be involved with the older two, um, my two nephews, the first two. Um, her dad has decided, you know, he doesn't want our family to have anything to do with the kids. So, that's a, you know, it's a blow, another blow for us because his kids are all we have left, you know. So we get to see the first older two and be involved, but the younger two, I have not seen them since the end of 2018. Because he, he blames my brother, you know, for the situation. And, you know, as a family, we could easily blame his daughter, but that's not the family that we are. You know, we rather, you know, like we can't fix that. We can't do anything about it. But we said, you know, we would love to be a part of their lives. You know, that's all we have left from my brother, you know, is his legacy and his kids are his legacy. So... That's, you know, that's another battle that we're in. Jessica shares with us the ripple effect of such a tragedy that reverberates through their family still today in more heartbreaking ways than one. Even his girlfriend's life, you know, her life is forever changed. She's not even able to raise my niece and nephew like she should be able to, you know, because she doesn't have that quality of life to even do that, you know, because from what I understand, she needs help doing everything. I think it's important for people to know to put the guns down because when you are out there committing these type of crimes, shooting people, you're not just taking a life. You are affecting other innocent lives that you don't repeat. You don't bounce back from it like that. You know, you don't heal from it like that. We're in it 
this happened in 2017. I'm in 2022. And there's still just a, a huge hole in my heart all because somebody decided to pick up a gun and go crazy. Not only did you take a life, but you you affected other people's lives and anybody who's out there, you know, with this evil spirit, you know, of murder instead of love and, you know, resolution and, you know, like coming to, if there is a disagreement, there's a different way to handle handle things you know I, i'm just not with the gun violence because it's been de- destroyed you know too many lives so i would just tell people think before you shoot you know think before you decide you want to kill somebody you know when people are picking up that gun they're not just affecting that person that's losing their lives you're affecting everybody attached you know to it you're affecting our community you know For us, as a family in losing Josh, it's a missing piece. And I say it's a missing piece. Some people will, you know, use the term, you know, we're forever broken. I don't feel like we're forever broken just because my brother was about love and family. And because we are still about love and family, I see it as a missing piece. You know, there's still a hole in our hearts knowing that he's not here. But... I choose to live my life like he lived his, which is in love, faith, and family, because I feel like if I did anything different, that would be giving the killer too much power. It would be giving him too much credit on what he did, and he don't deserve that. So I just prayed. I was like, God, you have to give me the strength to forgive. And so I started walking through, you know, that forgiveness process. And the Lord began to share with me just even in my prayer time that it's okay to want justice. It's different when you want revenge. When you're angry, you want revenge. When you carry that anger, you want revenge. But when you give that to God and you allow forgiveness to take over your life, now I just want justice. And that's to revenge and justice are two different things. So I just started walking that forgiveness piece out. And now I have, you know, that piece of knowing that um, I have forgiveness in my heart. Now I just want answers and that justice for my brother's life because we can't bring him back. We can't fix that. I don't have control over that. However, we can work to get justice for what happened to him. And that that's my main goal for my family to get justice um, and what happened to my brother. Joshua's death left many lives wondering what might have been. He was a son, brother, father, boyfriend, and friend, and will be forever missed. Never does the human soul appear so strong as when it foregoes revenge and dares to forgive an injury. Edwin Hubble Chapin If you have information about Joshua's murder, you can call the Kansas Bureau of Investigations at 1-800-KS-CRIME. That's 1-800-572-7463. That is a wrap on episode 12. Thank you guys so much for listening to this. It was um, such a pleasure talking to Joshua's sister, Jessica, 
And Lori, I know you listened to the interview. She just had so much love. And, you know, it was so nice to connect with her and hear so much about Joshua. I think what we need to start with is that what I think is such a struggle in these instances is that this is one of those communities that there was a murder there, you know, prior to this as well. And I don't think anybody wanted to come forward. Um, You're talking about an apartment building where a neighbor literally heard every word before somebody opened fire. Somebody went into an apartment and opened fire on a man and his girlfriend who was holding their baby with their children standing there. I mean, the tragedy, I think if there's anything, I mean, it's just unfathomable to me. But, you know, uh, what kind of person can go in and just open fire with that many children around? I mean, that is just a complete disregard for life. And those are things that are really hard when we cover these stories, Lori, just to, you know, just to try to comprehend who is in a position where this seems like it's it's a, a doable thing. Right. And as tragic as it is, I'm just so thankful, just as Jessica talked about, too, is that he, the shooter, did not kill or shoot any of the children. I mean, it could have been so much worse than it was. And although it has is bad, but he didn't kill the children. He didn't shoot the children. So for that, everyone is grateful for. But again, there was a shooting in that same complex on the third floor Almost under the same circumstances, somebody came in, the guy opened the door, and he was murdered, shot. So it's interesting that, that, but I don't think the two are connected, but I'm just saying, like, they're probably not connected. You know, we don't really have any suspects. And I think, you know, you talked to the police and, you know, they were more than willing to give us an interview, but just time had gotten away from us in that, um, like he said, they just really didn't have anything else to add other than they're looking for tips and they would like people to call in with any information because they would like this solved but they really don't have anywhere else to go on that. And in this case, I mean, they said a neighbor had said that they had heard, you know, some talking and he said hi. So it definitely sounds like it could be somebody that they knew. Um, And even the sister living in Kansas City, we don't really know the ins and outs of the relationship. Like, you know, could it have been a boyfriend, an ex-boyfriend? Could it have been a, a boyfriend of a girl that maybe he had had a relationship with? I mean, it could have been any type of anything type of friendship. And, you know, that's why they want to know why. Like, did something happen that nobody was aware of? But it definitely sounds like this was somebody that he knew. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, like you said, nobody opens the door. And and again, you know, even if you did open the door, let's say, and you didn't know who it was or you didn't know what the situation is, you're not going to open the door and say, hey, what's up? you know, and and have somebody come in. So, you know, and and I think of the person sitting there and she gave the police all the information she had. She didn't see anything. She heard the whole thing. You know, that's one of those things we talk about, the ripple effect. She lives with the fact that she heard this entire thing. She's laying there sleeping in the middle of the night and here's somebody, you know, saying hi, and then you don't think anything of it. And then once the voices were escalated and, you know, started saying, uh, you know, she could tell something had changed. And he said, I'm going to shoot you when I count to five. You know, it's like and, and then does it. I mean, that person must I can't imagine how terrifying that was. And then, you know, when somebody shoots, he shot, you know, Joshua first. Then he shot his girlfriend. I can imagine the chaos that must have been heard with children there watching this entire thing. And literally, 
you know, a baby in the arms of his mom when she gets shot in the head. It's just, it's incredulous to me. It's just crazy. And it's even crazier that they don't have any leads. I mean, nothing, no suspects, no name suspects, no persons of interest. They really are left with like a, somebody came in the night, shot and killed him and shot and tragically injured his girlfriend and changed lives in the amount of seconds and now they have no clue of who this person is. I know that his girlfriend, according to Jessica, has suffered lifelong consequences from that brain injury and in fact even has to have care, um, you know, full-time care. Um, she's never been physically able to return to how she was prior to that. And she must be so injured that if they did know who the murderer was, that she hasn't spoken, like she may not even be able to talk and identify him. So that's tragic right there. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the whole thing is just tragic. I think one lesson, um, or I think one thing, and again, I don't, I'm speaking from someone who's never lived in, um, in a high crime area, and I don't know the consequences of that. However, I can say that I think that Joshua's life Um, meant something and was worth something. And so I hope that if anyone has information or knows of something and know there's dangers and there's risks involved, but um, I just implore somebody to to come forward with any information. We have worked with Crime Stoppers and we have talked extensively with them and they really do take tips um, and they don't need a name. They don't have to have anyone associated with it. So you really can be anonymous. And again, we feel like Joshua and I know Jessica and his family feels that way. And I'm sure his children feels that his life mattered and his life meant something and is definitely worth someone coming forward and giving some type of closure or answers um, for this family. So that does it for us. We thank you guys for joining us. And we are going to wrap out our season two on this episode. And we will be back for season three very shortly. Meanwhile, if you have cases on the cards that you would like us to cover, please let us know. We would love to hear from you guys, good, bad, and different, or if you have any suggestions. And of course, if you have any information on these cases, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. Thanks, guys. We'll see you on season three. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Feeling Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubisak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent, Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you for listening and join us next time on Dealing Justice. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.